October 20th, 2011. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's Neurobiology Podcast. I'm your host, Salma Qureshi. I always forget to mention that. Um, our guest today is Steven Lisberger. He is HHMI, an HHMI investigator, currently at um, a, currently a professor of physiology at UCSF and very soon to be chair of the Department of Neurobiology at Duke University School of Medicine. Hi, Steve. Hi. Hi. Um, uh, his research uses a variety of quantitative and physiological methods to map the neural basis of visuomotor transformations, learning, and memory in, in monkeys trained to perform voluntary and reflexive eye movement tasks. So today we've got a little, a very little group. We basically got Charlie Wilson. Hi. Hi, and Steve, and me. I'm your host. So um, I, I wanted to start off first before we get into anything, um, Steve, by just saying that you've spent a, a, a chunk of your career as a prominent journal editor and have very recently published a. Um, 26 chapter book on the process of publishing successful science, uh, su- successful science paper. Do you want to plug that a little bit? I couldn't actually cite the page number because it's a Kindle book, right? So yes, it's a, it's only it's a electronic 26 book. chapters, yeah, right. and, and 900K. I don't know if, if people count no, no, books that's anymore. Right. Well, you know, size. Amazon counts because yeah. they, they charge me oh, really? for, for every 100K that people download, <laughs> uh, but very little. So tell us something about that. You should yeah. so, make money. Don't you make money? Yes, you make money. You oh. make a little money. But that's not what this is that's about. That's not what this is about. Let's right. talk about what this is about. So. No. so as the chief editor of neuroscience, I was invited on, on to, to, to give a number of talks, um, mostly in China but occasionally in Europe, on how to write a scientific paper. And through those talks, I, my PowerPoint started to evolve, and it became bigger. And I, I have to say that, that I went to the um, uh, annual meeting of the Chinese Neuroscience Society several years ago, and I gave a talk there at 5 o'clock in the afternoon, and I was stunned that there were 400 people there. The thirst for the information was so huge. And then the next day, I talked at Sun Yat-sen University, and I walked in and looked at the room. It was an enormous room with just rows and rows of seats, and I did a quick count and figured out that it had about 500 seats in it. And when time came for the talk, <clears throat> there, was, there were people everywhere. There was, you know three, four, five deep standing, sitting. So I, I figured there were a 1,000 students there. And afterwards, they mobbed me. They, were, they had so many questions. And their questions were so basic about how to start a career, how to run a career, how to write a paper, how to design a research project, who do I copy? What do I do? Um, that I was motivated to write it up and you know, provide it as a resource that, of course, might also bring a few extra dollars in every now and again. And I have to say that um, the process of going from a two-hour PowerPoint to a 30,000-word book was um, greater than I, more work than I expected. But it's been very rewarding, and uh, I'm proud of the book. Now, I did take the book to traditional publishers, and I was told that it was too short and that um, the royalty would be next to nothing if I wanted to sell it for a reasonable price, and they weren't willing to sell it for anything near as low a price as I wanted to sell it for. And so I decided that it would be an ebook only and that I would publish it, and people probably don't know that anyone can be their own publisher and publish an ebook on Amazon as a Kindle book. Uh, and this book is also available on Barnes and Noble as a Nook book. Uh, and um, it's nine ninety nine. Easy nine ninety nine. Right. Uh, the one thing people need to know that seems to be least well understood is that you don't need to have a Kindle to read a Kindle book. 
there is a Kindle app for every mobile device that exists and every computer. And so you can download the free Kindle app and then use that to buy a book from the Kindle store. Great. So, uh, so I just wanted. So let's start this, and, and, and please, I take this in any way you'd like to take it. But I, I just noticed in recent weeks, um, somewhere in the course of every podcast that we do with our guests, and we've recently had David McCormick and Phil Sabus and Cameron um, Cody had last year or last week. Uh, somewhere in the course of the podcast, one of the either the guest or one of the uh, participants. There's, there's always a point at which someone inevitably, inevitably brings up the curse of dimensionality problem. Right. There's only six muscles that control each eye. And we study mostly horizontal eye movements. And we don't worry about uh, – we, 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 we fix the head so we don't have to worry about head movements. And we uh, <clears throat> don't worry about you – know, we have a fixed distance of you know, working distance for the – the tasks that our subjects are doing. And so most of the potential dimensions are controlled. So that's been my approach, is to, to take something that is inherently in the natural world much more <clears throat> multidimensional than, um, than, you know, than, than we want to deal with and to try to reduce the dimension. That's, for me, has been the beauty of eye movements, is to be able to, to take a multidimensional system, reduce the dimensions that it works in, and then start to ask questions about the relationship between brain and behavior. Um, so what about generalizability of principles and adding dimensionality in, in to your system as, you've, as you sort of imagined it? Well, what are the, what are the big principles of sensory motor circuit operation? Uh, I talked about one of them today, which is transformation of coordinate systems from <clears throat> the retinal coordinate system where visual information is represented to the muscle coordinate system where we have to actually finally program the movements. And that's, that's a very hard problem, even if you're, you've reduced it to a single dimension. And I think that we actually have, we, you know, that's a, that, that's a problem that I mean, every system has it. Every system has to go from sensation, which is represented in the brain in one way, to motor output, which is represented in the brain in another way. They all have to solve the same problem. So we can do that in eye movements. <clears throat> uh, learning. So I move in, in my research on eye movements, there have been two movements that we've studied for learning. One is a very simple reflex movement. And from that simple reflex movement, we discovered that um, there are at least two different sites in the cerebellar circuit where learning occurs. So, I mean, that was, we're talking in the 80s when everybody believed that cerebellar learning was really monolithic, that it had to do with Long, with long-term depression of the synapse from parallel fibers to Purkinje cells. And we were able, through studying an eye movement system of real reflex, to bring out that there are multiple sites <clears throat> of learning, that they aren't all in the cerebellar cortex, and that they work together to solve a bigger problem. Now, there are other systems that are more more dimensional and I actually think that they work the same way but 
you know, we've been by by using the reduced dimensionality system, we've been able to really make progress about how the brain does something that they were not they have not yet been able to make. So, I mean, I don't want to appear to be criticizing my colleagues. I think eyelid conditioning has been the other really major cerebellar learning system, and they've made great strides, albeit along slightly different axes. So we've been much more oriented towards recording the activity of neurons, and they've been much more oriented towards very clever use of pharmacological manipulations. Um, and they've come to the same conclusion. So I think that the idea that you can use a simple, low-dimensional system to ask how things work, how basic questions of how the brain works are, are actually solved, I think it's, the idea works. Maybe this is a <clears throat> related to what you just said. I'm not certain. But I have a question about why the brain has so many neurons. So if, if we imagine the, the smooth pursuit, the dimensionality of smooth pursuit like you're setting it in horizontal movement, there are really sort of two dimensions to it. One of them is the direction the eyes move and the other is the velocity, and the cells have a preferred direction and a preferred velocity, and so you can imagine an array of cells that all differ in velocity, and another array of cells that have different preferred, same same arrangement, velocity, but in the opposite direction. Yeah, so, and, but maybe a ma maybe even, I mean, in the brain, because we get all directions, a matrix. Yes, so you could imagine <laughs> adding another dimension to that, and then it's going to take um, uh, more neurons than, than it takes if you're just mm -hmm. looking at two dimensions. Mm -hmm. That would be great if uh, if it was just uh, scalable like that. So mm -hmm. I worked out one dimension, and now I one-dimensional movements, and now I go to movements in all directions, and then I just, the whole thing still works. It just now works mm -hmm. by adding another. But, but when you start looking at the correlations among neurons, it looks as though the brain has added more neurons than it really needed to solve the task. And I know that, you know, we don't know what all the neurons in the MT are there for. And I, I don't want to ask a dumb question like that. But how, how much averaging, do we, does the brain really need to average zillions of neurons to get a good answer? And uh, is that the reason that there are lots of neurons in the cortex? Or is there some other deeper reason? That, that's a that, that's a really hard question, and it would be easy to give a glib answer, which I won't do. Thank you. Uh, <clears throat> let's step back, okay? Signals in the cortex are noisy, right? The variance of spike count is approximately equal to the mean of spike count. So let's ask about how many neurons there are in systems where they aren't so noisy. So, for example, let's take the vestibular ocular reflex. Now, I don't know exactly how many neurons there are at each stage of that reflex pathway, but I'm just going to make a wild guess that there are about 2,000 abducens neurons and about 2,000 to 4,000 interneurons in the vestibular nucleus and probably a couple of thousand Purkinje cells. So that's many fewer neurons than there are in MT, right? Yeah. So is that starting to get at 
the question of the number of neurons the brain needs to do reliable signaling in the absence of intrinsic noise. So I have to tell me what you mean by intrinsic noise, because the neurons in the cortex <coughs> themselves are not really intrinsically noisy. It must be intrinsic noise in this circuit that is making this Yeah, well, I'm talking about when you record from a neuron in an awake animal during behavior. And you calculate the spike count on many repetitions of the same behavior. So I'm just thinking that in a, yeah. in a place that has lots of neurons <coughs> that are connected with a lot of connectivity, the stuff that you see as noise is really because there's a lot of neurons with a lot of connectivity. And not because the neurons are intrinsically noisy. Right, but that, so, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, you, you know, maybe it starts off you need so many neurons to do a task, and because of the nature of the brain being connected with convergent and divergent connections, they start to get noisy. And so that scales up the number of neurons you need to get rid of the noise, right? Because, I mean, we know that these neurons have two classes of noise. They have independent noise that we think of as being intrinsic, that is private to that neuron. And then they have correlated noise, where the whole population, or at least neurons with like stimulus preferences, are fluctuating up and down together. And that correlated noise, we think, propagates all the way through to the motor output. But the independent noise, the variance of that will be diminished as 1 over n, where n is the number of neurons. And so I'm thinking that if you have a system that, because of its connectivity, is intrinsically going to have noisy signals in it. Can we say that instead of saying it's noisy? Does that make it clearer? Yeah. That doesn't improve, that doesn't imply that the neurons themselves are noisy, but because of the way they're hooked up, maybe they then acquire noisy signals. Yeah. But you don't want those noisy signals to be, become part of the, the downstream. So you need a lot of neurons to subtract, you know, to average out those independent noisy signals. I don't know. I mean, that's, <clears throat> so in the brainstem systems, where the signals that we record are 20-fold less noisy, maybe you can get away with 20-fold fewer neurons. So maybe that accounts for the difference in the scale between, say, MT or the motor cortex, or the, in our case, the, the frontal eye fields, the part of the frontal eye fields, and um, uh, you know, the brainstem and cerebellum. I don't know. It's not, I don't think we have answers to that question. So one thing that's sort of <coughs> built into the determination of what's noise and what isn't noise is the notion that, that uh, everything is encoded by red. And, uh, and so that means that anything that isn't a, like a smooth speed up or a slow down, so if a cell is going at the same constant rate, any fluctuation is find as noise. Mm -hmm. is, uh, a long time ago, I read a, a, a very cool book chapter in the Neurosciences Study Program, the first one, mm -hmm. by uh, Mount Castle, in which he like, considered, f from first principles, what all the different kinds of encoding schemes could be. It's a wonderful, wonderful mm -hmm. chapter. And one of the things he considered was that sort of fine structure of the spike train. And he entertained the notion that during a response that includes a rate change, 
that there could be little fluctuations in rate from spike to spike that could mean something. Do you think we should entertain that idea in the cortex? I know it's not a popular idea in the cortex, but... Uh, is yes a good enough answer? <laughs> <laughs> well, what would, be the right, what would be the right thing to do if we wanted to entertain that idea? Well, so here's, here's a, a... You know, to do this, you need a system with a behavior where the behavior is dynamic in the sense that it evolves over time and where there are enough fluctuations so that you can ask what, what's the noise source for those fluctuations. Um, and so counting spikes for two seconds, dividing that by two and calling it the rate is not going to get us there, right? And I don't think anybody anymore, that's where we sort of started. I don't think anybody anymore thinks that two-second epics of spikes are what's used by the nervous system to do anything. So <clears throat> maybe 100 milliseconds is more, or 200 milliseconds, more relevant. And then within that time, you're right, there may well be fluctuations in spiking that are important. <clears throat> if I can advertise one of our papers... Um, Stephanie Palmer, Leslie Osborne, Bill Bialik, and I, maybe not in that order, I'm not sure what the order of authors was, <clears throat> analyzed the uh, spike trains of MT neurons on a very fine time scale, and we simply calculated the information about the direction of motion. And we did that just by counting spikes, and we did it by looking at... Um, small groups of neurons and asking about the spikes and silences. So when they were all spiking or when they were all silent. And you can approximately double the amount of information you get about the direction of target motion from taking into account the patterns of spikes and silences. Now, that doesn't mean that the brain does it that way, right? We were able to go one step further and show that it was the difference in the dynamic behavior of the individual neurons. So they all preferred the same stimulus, right? But some of them had big transient overshoots and some of them rose up more slowly. That, that difference was what conveyed the additional information. So that, that feature, the, the different dynamics. So, you know, cortical neurons have a wide, wide variety of dynamics. There are, as you point out, too many more neurons than you think you need. For any given that prefer any given stimulus, so maybe there's information there. Maybe that's why it's important. So can I keep going? Because I have a couple more questions. Clerks, you're going. The way that um, the way that a a place map gets read, it, we have a kind of simple idea of it, and that is, at least I should say, we. I have a simple idea. Mm -hmm. The simple idea of it is that place in the whatever sensory dimension that is getting mapped maps onto position on the cortical surface in some kind of simple way. Good. So, this is my next question. Oh, good. good. So places that <laughs> are near each other in space yeah. are encoded in V1 by neurons that are near each other. That's a kind on of the map. It's right. a classic right. way of thinking about right. it. But every now and then, we get... We want to map two orthogonal things into the same space, and something kind of has to 
give. And mm -hmm. if it's higher than two, it, things mm -hmm. just get worse. And so, uh, so in your case, uh, you are telling me that the direction is kind of spatially mapped, but mm -hmm. the preferred speed of movement isn't. Mm -hmm. So, how do we? How should we picture a place code like that working? How do neurons that are like each other get correlated with each other, and how do they get the same input even though they're in different places? And what do we know about that kind of thing, if anything? I don't know that we know that much about it. I mean, there certainly are plenty of lateral connections in the cortex, and I take the the fact that neurons with like stimulus preferences are more highly correlated with each other, both in terms of signal and noise, I take that as evidence that they're receiving common inputs. And so the brain must be organized that way. But I don't know what the spatial scale is. I mean, the, the brain is designed to transmit information across big distances. That's what it does best, right? In short times. Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> so, but it implies some kind of wonderful structure and synaptic connections mm -hmm. that are often not seen in the anatomical experiments. It's probably because we don't know how to interpret that. That's right. The, the dust of labeled batons and whatnot that we're looking at. Well, and we also don't know the, the, preferred, the preferred stimulus properties of the neurons that we're looking at. Uh -huh. right? So it, it's, it's a question that has to be answered with physiological techniques. Or with some anatomical techniques we don't have yet. Yes. So I, I, I thought you could maybe we could step back for some of those kind of larger ideas and give our listeners just a, a kind of a basic idea of, of why it's important. Like, I, thought, I was hoping you could make the argument about why we need to track behavioral variability to its neural basis. Like what is the impact of, of some of those studies that you've done? I'm just trying to figure out what's what, what you know, there are so many possible answers to that kind of question. I mean, one one way to answer it is that we place huge value on motor acts that are accurate. And so, I mean, for example, Larry Bird made 71 consecutive free throws in competition once, in NBA competition. People, you know, highly regard, respect that accomplishment and it makes it a really interesting question of why did he miss the 72nd? Right? That's one way to look at it. Um, I think that one of the reasons we do what we do in terms of research is because we feel a compulsion to understand how we work. And in many ways, that's been, over the years, one of the driving forces of research on the brain. And I think it's made it into one of the great final frontiers, you know, the physics of the 21st century. Um, we live, of course, in a world where greater value is placed on translational accomplishments, at least by the people who are providing us with our ultimate reward, which is the funding to keep doing this for five more years. And so we probably need to, we do need to think about what is the meaning of 
studying variation in terms of health. And so there are two answers along those lines. One is sort of the standard answer, which is to say, well, studying variation is just another way, another angle of gaining access to the question of how the brain works when it's working. And if we can use variation as a way of probing how signals are processed as they move from one part of the system to the next, then it gives us a different way of trying to understand how neural circuits work. And in neurological and neuropsychiatric disorders may have molecular origins, but they have symptoms, and symptoms represent the incorrect function of a circuit. And so they are all circuit disorders. And so if we're going to understand circuit disorders, we need to understand how the circuits work when they're not, when they're, when they're operating normally. So that's one way of talking about, I don't think it's terribly effective. I don't, I think, I don't think we've yet figured out the language that we need to use and the ideas we need to use to convey to people that understanding how circuits generate behavior is a critical step towards diagnosing, treating, and curing circuit disorders, which is what most neurological and neuropsychiatric disorders are. And we need to figure out how to, how to answer that. Um, the other way to, to, the other angle to put on it is to say, well, variation, abnormal variation is part of disease states. And so I can think of a couple of examples, and I'm sorry that I can't remember the authors. It may have been from Chris Dezay's group. Um, there is a mutant mouse that was ataxic, is ataxic, and they went in and recorded from Purkinje cells in the cerebellum, and they discovered that they were excessively variable in their spiking. And if they, this may have been a PQ calcium channel mutation or something, so they rescued it, and the animal's ataxia went away. Now, I may be confabulating a little bit of that, but that was the basic story. So abnormal variation may be at the heart of some neurological disorders. And then, you know, at the other extreme, of course, who knows uh, where obsessive-compulsive disorder comes from and what it is, but I do note that it's probably a case where there's too little variation, where a little more noise would probably help, uh -huh. right? So maybe we can even, in some cases, make the direct link from studying variation to disease. But I think the place, I don't know what you think, Charlie, I think the place where we're really missing the boat in our piece of the field is explaining to people why you have to understand how circus generate behavior in order to really get at the heart of, of neurological and neuropsychiatric diseases. Yes. <laughs> uh, you know, when people ask me a question like that, I usually don't approach it from a sort of disease perspective. I'm, I'm completely appreciative of the need to be practical mm -hmm. and to learn more about our about nature that we can use to manipulate nature and learn more about ourselves so that we can live longer and be happier and so on. But, um, but I think that every human being understands the need to explain the relationship between their personal experience and the physical construction of the brain. Mm -hmm. 
as in how do the do the cells in my brain, which are just made out of molecules and are strictly little deterministic machines and are pretty simple, how does a collection of those become an intelligent agent in the world? This, and um, if the people who, if regular people uh, know, who are not interested in the brain beforehand uh, are, hear it posed that way, they become interested. So Have you heard I, it posed that way in study section? In grants, <laughs> and does it work with the group? Well, actually, yes, because everybody usually in a in a study section that I would be on, everybody in the room has that as their consensus. That's the one thing they all started this yeah. with was that desire to understand that. What they're not sure of is whether people who are not neuroscientists have the same curiosity. <clears throat> and what I would assure them, if I could, was that yes, everybody has that. Curiosity. Everybody wants to know the answer to that question, and uh, and I think it's practical. I think we are better because we understand that the Earth isn't at the center of the universe, and that planets and stars don't revolve around us. Even though that doesn't cure any disease, I think that was a really important thing, and that we're happier and better for knowing that. And I think the same thing is true with all the other really great scientific questions. And I think that humanity makes huge leap forward when it understands its correct place in the world and the nature of, even if it doesn't mean that I can live 10 years longer or something like that. That's my rant. You started it. (laughs) I'm not sure I agree with you. I mean, I totally agree with you philosophically. (laughs) But I'm not sure I agree with you that everyone or even a majority or even more than a small minority cares about how their brain works and how you get the human experience They will out after of this podcast. <laughs> That's the point. Well, I hope so. <laughs> well, thanks for being with us, Stephen Lisberger. Uh, this has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Thank you.